we're uh, in the, the well unfortunately we had to stop kind of in the middle of the second part of uh, the Apostle Paul's argument in Romans. Let's uh, review a couple of really quick things here just <clears throat> to make sure that we're all on the same track. The theme of the book is really in uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, 17 and 18, that we are justified by faith. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, which, as he argues, uh, reveals, exposes the righteousness of God. And the question then is, how does God make us righteous? Because we are sinners and so on. That's what, uh, that's what he's about to show. Starting with verse 18 of chapter 1, then, through uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 20, he wants to demonstrate, I don't know how else to put it, so I'm going to put it this way very bluntly, universal condemnation of all humanity, that all humans stand guilty before God. And this is resulting from their rejection of God's revelation to humanity. We already covered this, but one, uh, 18th, is God's revelation creation. And we looked uh, a couple weeks ago, they have suppressed that and have distorted that. Distorted it in, the term, in terms of replacing the worship of the creator with the worship of created things. That leads to idolatry and so on. Now, we saw how that, that sin of idolatry starts a downward spiral, which is masterfully detailed in one 18 through 32. It's, I think, one of the best passages in the entire Bible to show the results of humanity rejecting God's revelation. <clears throat> and so he's in, we're in the middle in chapter 2, which goes through uh, verse uh, 16 of God's revelation in, 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 in terms of the human being's conscience, their heart and their conscience. And so what he tries to do as he begins, and if you're looking at your notes, which I encourage you to do, he focuses on 1, 1 through 16. Human judgment is self-condemnatory. It's according to truth, according to works, and it's according to obedience to God. Now, what is he doing here? Perhaps in these early verses of chapter 2, he's dealing with the Jewish person. The Jewish person who argues that because we are the chosen people of God, we have an inside track with God, and therefore all the rest of you, those of you who are not Jews, are not as good as us. And he therefore shows how that is fallacious, how that is faulty reasoning. And as we looked last week, he showed in that it's according to truth, that the, the, the person who, like the Jewish person, who believes they are moral, who believes they are ethical, he charges them with being hypocrisy, being hypocrites. At hypocrisy, you, you champion God's moral law, but you don't keep God's moral law. Therefore, you're guilty. And then secondly, he shows, and this is where we left last week, verse 6 through 11, God does judge. He will render to each one according to his works. And he demonstrates how clearly God will do this. And again, speaking of what the moralist is saying, I'm better than you are. And Paul says, no, you're not. You're a hypocrite. Because even though you champion God's moral law, you don't keep it. Perhaps, again, referring to the Jew. Now, where we are today is beginning with verse 12. 
he has to show something here. He has to show how the Jewish person who evaluates their life according to keeping the law and the non-Jewish person who does not have the law are both guilty before God. How can God hold them both accountable for his moral law, for keeping or rejecting or suppressing his moral law? Are you with me? That's, that's what he's doing now. So look at verse 12. It, it's really quite masterful. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, now that sentence should not be difficult for you to understand. God is just in his, the perfection of all his attributes. When he judges, he always judges according to a standard. Those who are without the law perish without the law. Those who live under the law are judged by the law. Okay, understand that, Paul. But how can he hold the person who does not have the law accountable to keeping his moral law? That's a very important question he has to answer here. Verse 13. (laughs) For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. Their law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law, which is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Verse 16 is a crucial verse a critical verse in the argument that Paul is constructing in 118 through 320 to demonstrate the universal condemnation of all human beings before God. How can God hold all human beings accountable? So you have two key witnesses that are revealed to us in verse 16, excuse me, verse 15. They show that the work of the law The work of what law? What's he talking about? The moral law of God. What's the best summary of the moral law of God? The Ten Commandments. That's the best summary of the moral law of God in the Scriptures. What does Paul just say? It's written on their hearts. In other words, God's moral law is... If I use the word innate, do you know what I mean? Innate to every human being. Every human being has a sense, I'm not sure that's the right word, but I'll use it, has a sense of what is right and wrong. That's why if we do something as a little child, as we do something that's wrong, we kind of feel guilty about it. Now, it doesn't take us too long as a child, just like as an adult, to suppress that, and our, our, our heart and conscience are hardened, and we do whatever we want to do. But Paul is really, really saying something here that's quite crucial to his overall argument. Even the person who has not received the law of God, for example, the Jewish people, the law, and so on, the law is written on their hearts. 
So God gives humanity. It's part, let me put it another way. Part of being a human being is we're not only creating the image of God, which establishes our worth and value and so on, but also God puts his moral law on our heart innately. We have an innate sense of right and wrong. Is that that done by the Holy Spirit? (coughs) Well, how does that come about? That, I think it's part of uh, it's part of just being a human being. In other words, God creates us. We have that in a sense. Well, in a way, I mean, in a way, it's genetic, but it's part of what it means to be a human being. That, that's how He's made us. That's how He's made us. We, you know, David writes in Psalm 139, "We're fearfully and wonderfully made." This is an aspect of that. There, you know, there's the the out the body and the beauty and ma- you know majesty of the human body, how it works and all of that. That's created by God. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, but in the same sense, we also have an innate value of God, to God. We're creating His image, and He puts His moral law in our hearts. So, human every human being has that innate sense, of right and wrong. And that's an ama- that's that's unique to the human race. Animals don't have that. Insects don't have that. Obviously, plants don't have that. That's silly, but you understand what I mean. Uniquely, human beings do. And so that, that and the key word there, while their conscience also bears witness, the word witness is a word of revelation. It's a word of, of God. This is a witness of God in the human being. Where does this come from? That included millions of people at that time, right? Because sure. civilization existed well. Or the Ten Commandments. Oh yeah, yeah. And this is he's going he's to show this to us in, in, in Romans chapter five that even before the law was given to Moses, what about from Adam to Moses? How are people accountable for that? Here's the answer. He's going to argue this later on as well. But here's the answer of why God can hold account hold human beings accountable from the time of Adam. Until the time of Moses, when the law was given, the moral law of God was inscripturated. The answer is what he's arguing right here. So again, remember what he's trying to prove here is the universal condemnation of all humanity. How can God hold all humanity accountable? Here is part of his answer. And again, I, I read this: the work, the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. <clears throat> Now, there are two things there that, that serve as a witness for God. One is written on their hearts, which is a kind of a euphemism in a way, because, I mean, God doesn't take a pen and write it on our hearts. It's a figure of speech. You understand what I mean? It's, it's part of us, because the heart is a metaphor in, in both the Old and New Testament, actually, but it's a metaphor for the center of our being, the center of our will, the center of what it means to be a human. God puts it there. Yeah, innate. I mean, we're born with it. I mean, I, I can't remember. I think I might have mentioned this last week, but I used the example of one of my grandchildren. Yeah. He's seven, and just, it, it's, so, it's so fascinating to watch these little children who are growing up, you know, and learning all the things that you learn as a young child. But how you, there is that, you can, I see it in them, that innate sense of right and wrong. But it doesn't take very long for them to suppress that. And they can rationalize almost anything. And what happens tragically then as adults is 
we are able to rationalize egregious violations of God's moral law in, in so many different ways. But I want to talk secondly about this word conscience. <laughs> it's used 39 times in the New Testament. It's a very important word, but it's, it's a word that's difficult to define. Because, and Paul, there are a couple of instances being used in the book of Hebrews, but almost always it's only Paul that uses the word conscience. So when we think of conscience, um, it's kind of a slippery thing. What does that exactly mean? 5165. <clears throat> okay. Did, was I, I, I think I wasn't supposed to respond to that, so I'm not going to respond to it. Okay. So conscience, what does it mean? I, I've struggled. I even wrote an article on it a, a number of years ago. Because what I think conscience means in terms of how it's used in the New Testament, it's like a thermometer. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a gauge in our life. Because as the moral law of God is using the words of Paul written on our hearts, conscience then becomes the guide. For that which is written on our heart, conscience becomes the guide. For thermometer, you're getting, you're getting too hot. You're getting too close to violating God's moral law. Don't do that. Stop. And it, conscience becomes that guide, that in a God, taking the moral law of God written on our hearts, and becomes the guide that, that shows us we should do this, we should not do this. Because if that innate sense of right and wrong is in our hearts, written on our hearts, the way Paul describes delivery. Then, con- then conscience becomes that, that, that guide for us. Delivery status. That... Uh, Glenn must be talking Delivery. to somebody. Glenn, you need to mute out. Glenn, I'm hearing you talking to somebody, so I don't... Okay, that's good. Thank you. But anyway, so conscience becomes that guide. It's like in Pinocchio, which was one of my daughter's favorite cartoons, Jiminy Cricket. Remember? You, know, you don't even know who I'm talking about. Okay. If you had kids, maybe you remember that. But it, it, Jiminy Cricket's kind of... Or like in cartoons that, when again, when I was growing up, cartoons, you had this little cloud with a uh, uh, an angel or some being with a you know a halo telling you what to do it's right and then on the other cloud a red demonic like figure with a pitchfork and all that do this do this this is the right thing to do do this you know, it's lying and cheating and all that kind of stuff that's sort of in a way maybe but it's not completely the way to think about it it's that it's that innate operation that God gives to us that is to guide us based on the things that are written on our hearts. Now, what happens, the Bible uses this a number of times, our conscience becomes hardened. The Apostle Paul uses that phrase, a hardened conscience, which means conscience is no longer a reliable guide. That's why, and I'm going, this was part of what I wrote in that article, when we become a, a Christian, when we put our faith in Christ, among all the many, many things that God is remaking and transforming in our lives is conscience. Now, conscience is informed by the Holy Spirit using his word. And the, the conscience used by the Holy Spirit, which is informed by God's word, then becomes once again a reliable guide. 
So like everything else in our lives, when we come to faith in Christ, conscience also has to be transformed. But as it is informed by God's word, then it becomes a reliable conscience. Is that referencing like the renewing of your heart and your mind? Sure, sure, absolutely. That's right. God is renewing and remaking and transforming everything. Now, it's, I don't know if I want to go down this money trail, but I'll take one more step down the money trail. This is where Paul talks about it a lot. In, for example, in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, or in Romans 14, which we'll get to in 2025. But conscience can be described as weak or as strong. So when Paul talks about that, I'll use the example in 1 Corinthians 8, where he's talking about meat offered to idols. Do I have the right? Can I go into an idol temple and eat a meal with my wife? Paul says, yes. But if a believer with a weak conscience sees you, he may misunderstand what you're doing, and you could lead him into greater depths of sin. So it might be better for you to not exercise that right. So he talked about, okay, what does that mean, weak and strong conscience? Someone who comes, just comes to know Christ, their conscience is going to be weak. Can I use this word, undeveloped? Because they have not yet been growing in that process of sanctification. The conscience is not necessarily a reliable guide. And so you have to give them time. A strong conscience is someone who has presumably walked with the Lord for a while. Their conscience is being transformed, and it is a reliable guide. So conscience is one of those really slippery things in Scripture. It's kind of hard to get your arms around it intellectually. I've tried to do that here in these last five minutes. But it's real. Oh, absolutely it's real. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it's part of what, what God has innately put on our hearts. Conscience then becomes that, that guide using what's written on our hearts to enable us to do that which is right before God or that which is wrong before God. And Paul says these are a witness. A witness of what? Of what God has done. So if we as human beings reject that witness of what God put on our hearts and conscience, we're rejecting the revelation of God. And therefore we are accountable. So this, this is a very powerful and important section of Scripture because it answers, well, actually the first two answer. What, what, when, I've had this asked me dozens of times over the years. Well, what about those who've never heard about Christ? How can God hold them accountable? How can God say to them, you have rejected what I've revealed to you? Well, you now know the answer, don't you? Creation and conscience. Every human being, no matter the, the generation right after Adam, or today in 2022, every human being has those two revelations of God to respond to. And what Paul is arguing is human beings have universally suppressed the revelation creation and distorted it, and human beings have suppressed the revelation of the law written on their hearts that's then monitored by conscience. Each man goes his own way. There's a scripture that references that, too. Not the book of Judges, for example. It's not a... Not at all. No, that's right. That's right. 
And so then Paul says, there's coming a day when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So it's telling us the issue, the revelation of conscience will be used by God as part of his, this would be at the great white throne judgment, a part of how he will evaluate and say, this is what you've chosen through life. God does not send people to hell. It's a result of the choices they've made. And so, it's, it's, again, this is a very, very important section that we've been, we've been studying. I'm not quite done with what God, uh, excuse me, what Paul, I'm sorry, God reveals. But we're now done with the second issue of conscience. Any questions, other questions? Either here or online, everybody with me? All right. Verse 17, we cross into a second excuse me, a third area of God's revelation, and it's the moral law of God. Now here, this is, a, this is a very specific item. It's referring to a very specific historical event, and it's, of course, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai in 1446 B.C. It's, it's what God now said, okay, what I'm going to do, Moses, is I'm going to give you my law, Moral law, ceremonial law, civil law. I'm going to give you my moral law. And that is summarized in the Ten Commandments. But it's each one is then given much more detailed, especially in the book of Deuteronomy. So he has to talk, he, Paul, has to talk about the enormous importance of being a Jew. Look at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then teach others. Do you not teach yourself? All right, now I, re- I read from 317 through 321. I'm sorry, 217 through 221. Because I want you to get this holistic approach Paul's taking. And what he does in verse 17 and verse 18, he itemizes the five covenant advantages of being a Jew. And so he is reiterating what he personally experienced and what he personally valued being a Jew. First of all, you call yourself a Jew. Now, the word Jew comes from Judah. The word Jew is the ethnic name given to the children of Israel. Remember, Israel is the covenant name of Jacob. We studied that a couple of months ago. We were studying the patriarchs. You rely on the law. The law is the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant, whatever you want to call it. It's the law of God. You rely on that. That's true. They keep the kosher food laws. They observe the Sabbath. They, they observe the sacrificial system. All of that, you rely on the law. That's my guide for life. Second, you boast in God. Now, what he means by that is you elevate God. He is the most important person in your life. 
and you know his will. How do they know his will? Because it's revealed in his scripture. And fourthly, you approve what is excellent, which is really an extremely important statement (coughs) because Paul is taking a word that was very important to the Greco-Roman world and saying, you are Jews, approve what is excellent because it's all based on what God has revealed. Why? You're a Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God, you know his will, and you prove what is actually. Why? Because you have been instructed in the law. That's what he says at the end of verse uh, 18. You've been instructed in the law. And you know that's true. Because in the history of the Jewish faith, the history of Judaism, the most important thing they do is they begin to instruct their children at a very young age in the law. If you're an Orthodox Jew today and you're a boy, you must go to Hebrew school. You live in Brooklyn, you must go to Hebrew school. You must learn the Hebrew language. You will sit under a rabbi. You will memorize that portion of the Old Testament, often in Hebrew. You're instructed in the law. And then he adds, and this is really important, and because you are a Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God, you know his will, and you approve what is excellent because you've been instructed in the law, you have an ethical obligation. You're sure that you yourself shall be a guide to the blind. You, as a Jew, the chosen people of God, who have been his people, because in you, this is what God said to Abraham, remember we studied this when we lived in the patriarchs, in you all the nations will be blessed. You are to be God's light, his witness, a guide to the blind. And that metaphor is a spiritually blind. Second, a light to those who are in darkness. That's what you're supposed to be. Israel, you are my light in this dark world. God says that in Isaiah several times. Thirdly, you are the instructor of the foolish. Those in God's eyes who are wise are those who have has God's law, has have his revelation. But he just itemized those five covenant advantages. A teacher of children. It's really one of, the, one of the greatest proponents of education in all of history have been the Jewish people because they want their children to know the law, to memorize the law, and to live the law. Now, Jim, they are also like any other family in that the fathers may be derelict and have responsibility, correct? Of course, of course. Now, many Orthodox Jewish families, the fathers a virtual dictator, <laughs> but that, that is correct. And if they're derelict in that, which they have been, then we'll see the consequences of that. Look at how he closes out this part of his argument in verse 20. Easy your response to a guide to the blind, light to those in darkness, instructor of the foolish, teacher of children, because you have the law. It's a causal participle. Because you have the law. Notice what he says of the law. The embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's profound. That's why King David, when he wrote Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the Psalter, that whole psalm is just an affirmation of the value and the importance of God's law. David will write, oh, how I love your law. He will say in that same psalm, thy law had put in my heart that I might not sin against you. So he, he... Paul is saying what he believed as a Jew and what he believes now. The law is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. 
What does this <coughs> what does Solomon say? The beginning, the beginning of wisdom is what? Knowledge of God. You know, it's the most important. The how do I know about God in great detail, in specific detail? God's law. It's the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And again, refer to Psalm 119, a, a wondrous, wondrous meditation by David on the value of the law in his life. In the case of a child growing up, his father is, is, is not a Jew. He lives in the world. He's of the world. And this child still has this conscience that we referenced earlier in the discussion. And that child is aware of the presence Love, it has to be the presence of the Holy Spirit on this earth. Isn't that correct? And what is the guidance to say that's wrong or that's right? And you get close to that edge you talked about. Isn't that the presence? Well, but in an unbelie in an unbeliever's life, yeah. the Holy Spirit is not at work in terms of any of these areas because they don't have the Spirit. Jesus says in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life is a work of conviction. No, that's in the world. The world is outside of the Christian, outside of the church, outside of believers. That's his, he, he is not working through you know, his word and human... But as he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, the result of that convicting work is, well, let me put it this way, should be that person coming to faith. But they may reject the work of the Holy Spirit, convicting them of the work of the Spirit outside of a believer. In a believer's life, it's a totally different, the Holy Spirit indwells us, it's a totally different ministry. Teaching, guiding, convicting, all those things in our lives have become so important. So I'm, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but... The the, the, the the Jewish person is supposed to take God's law and teach their children about God, about righteousness, about his law, and about what he requires of us, our children, because it is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. If you don't do that, that child still has the witness of creation and conscience. God always has a witness of himself in any human being's life. He always has a witness for himself. But because of the nature of who we are as humans, we have the opportunity to either accept that witness, and God sends more revelations, we can know more about him and respond to him, or we reject that witness. And in rejecting that witness, as Paul writes there in verse 16, we will be held accountable for that. So Paul has now, he's gone from creation, which is very general, it begs for a designer, to conscience, which is more specific, God writes his moral law in our hearts, to now the moral law, which is very specific, it's been written down, so it's very specific. All right, now, he's reviewed the five covenant advantages of being a Jew, Verse 17 and 18, he has reviewed the obligation of the Jew. There are four 
obligations, guide for the blind, light for those in darkness, instruct the foolish, teach the children, because they have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then teach others. Verse 21. Do you not teach yourself? That's a rhetorical question. In effect, he's saying, do you live what you teach? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that the one must not commit adultery. Do do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? That seems to be a reference to the pagan temples out of greed, not for purposes of showing the the righteousness of God. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. This is a very serious charge. It's exactly what Jesus Christ said of the Pharisees. What was the word he kept using of the Pharisees? Hypocrites. You say one thing, you do the other. You are the blind leading the blind. In another place, Jesus says, you Pharisees are whitewashed sepulchers. To think about what that means. On the outside, very nice, clean, white, sparkling in the sun. But what's in a sepulcher? Something that's dead. So Jesus Christ indicts the Jewish people of his generation when he was doing his public ministry in the same way Paul is indicting them. You are hypocrites. You have five covenant advantages. You have a four-part duty and obligation before God. But when you, quote, do this, close quote, You teach it, but you don't keep it. You try to live, oh, we keep the Sabbath. We don't don't commit adultery. We don't steal. Paul is saying, but you do. This is the end result, verse 24. And he quote, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed. Isaiah 52, 5. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Because of you. And the you there is plural, referring to the Jew. Because you see, you know all this, I'll just quickly remind you. God chose the Jewish people, his chosen people, his covenant people, to be a witness for him. In you, all the nations will be blessed, God says to Abraham. You are to be my witness, because they were in a bad neighborhood in the ancient world. Surrounded by polytheist and grossly immoral uh, civilization and all that, and they were to be the light of God, doing what He just said: those four ethical obligations, duties you have. But they become known for their hypocrisy. They teach it, but they don't live it. And so the consequence is: the name of God is slandered. The name of God is mocked among the Gentiles. Because of you. And so this indictment (laughs) of 
and I don't have to say it, Philip, just said this, this indictment of the covenant people of God, it's general, it's obvious there were many exceptions. He was one of them. Paul came to know faith in, by faith in Christ. But anyway, is, is, a, is a significant indictment. You are so privileged. You have the law of God. It's not only written in your heart, it's written down for you to study and to, and to commit and to understand because it is the embodiment of knowledge and truth for what he's done with it. To whom much is given, much is required. Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> now, with this, which is rather piercing and penetrating, there's no question about it, with this indictment of the Jewish people who have received the moral law of God, this is what he does so well. It's, it's called a diatribe, diatribe way of making an argument. He anticipates a question. He anticipates an objection. It's almost like this. Somebody says, hold it, Paul. Just a minute. We have circumcision. We have the sign of the covenant. We have the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The early rabbis used to say, Abraham sits at the gates of hell and will not let any of his children in. We've got the inside track. So Paul has to answer that. What about circumcision? So in verse 25 through 29, he addresses this issue of circumcision. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The sign of that unconditional, unilateral covenant relationship with God. For circumcision indeed is a value. It's profitable. It's important. If you obey the law. If he hadn't put that little conditional phrase at the end, we might have but. He makes that clear. If you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, I want to remind you of something here. This is very, very important. Because if you don't understand this, you miss a lot of what's in the Old Testament and you miss what he's saying here. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional unilateral covenant where God promises land, seed, and blessing to Abraham and all of his descendants. God will keep those covenant promises. And he has, uh, his, and he will at the end of time. That's what we're going to study in Romans 9, 10, 11. Is God done with the Jewish people? They rejected Jesus. They rejected him as the Messiah. They didn't want anything to do with him. So God's done with them? The answer is no, he's not done with them. He will keep his promises. But the other covenant is the Mosaic covenant, or what is usually called the law. That's conditional. That's bilateral. In, in one of my other Bible studies right now, we're studying Joshua. And in, in the book of Joshua, after they defeat the first Canaanite city-states of Jericho and Ai, Joshua takes the people off to Shechem, and they renew the covenant there. And they read Deuteronomy 28. Well, he reads it. And the people on Mount Ebal review all the blessings of the covenant. The people on Mount Gerizim review all the curses of the covenant. Because the Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant. 
You experience the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant if you obey God. You experience the cursings of the Mosaic Covenant if you disobey God. And he says to them in Deuteronomy 28, if you do not walk with me in love and obedience according to the law, your crops will not. You will not have a harvest. You will have drought. You will have famine. And if you keep in your idolatry rejecting me, I will send you into exile. I will rip you from your land. That's the language he uses. But I will bring you back. Mosaic covenant, Abrahamic covenant. And so when Paul says circumcision is of value if you obey the law, if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You become like a Gentile. You become you 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 become a person who is willfully rejecting me. So if a man is uncircumcised, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now, that sounds weird. That sounds funny. What's he saying? In terms of salvation, circumcision is irrelevant. You understand that? that that's the point he's making. In terms of salvation, it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. He's getting to that. What does matter? Well, how you respond to Christ, but he's not quite there yet. So he makes this audacious statement, which have been terribly offensive to the Jew. If a person who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, written on their heart, guided by conscience, etc., will not his uncircumcision be guided circumcision? Then he, who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, will condemn you. He'll be a witness for the prosecution against you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical. Verse 29 is a crucial statement. But a Jew is one inwardly, Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Now that statement, circumcision is a matter of the heart, is from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 4.4, Deuteronomy 10.16. So even in the Old Testament, even in the Mosaic Covenant, the clarity of what circumcision is was defined. It's inward. It's of the heart. You are committing your life to the living God. And that circumcision is an outward sign that you are of the covenant people, but it comes from the decision you've made in your heart. And so Paul is not, that statement in verse 29 should not be an unusual, unheard of, unknown statement to the Jews, because it's right out of uh, two, I quoted two of them there, right out of the Old Testament. You see, what, what Paul's trying to get at, and this is what's so critical in what he's doing, is the Jewish people have received the moral law of God. You think you have the inside track because you've received the law. Because you received the law, you are more accountable. You have a greater level of accountability to God. And it's the object, but wait a minute, Paul, what about circumcision? Paul masterfully answers that. Circumcision without 
the inward decision about the heart is irrelevant. Circumcision has nothing to do with salvation. Now, I was getting all animated there and raising my voice and getting all excited. But do you, do you understand, have you, you followed this flow from verse 17 through verse uh, 20, uh, uh, 29, which we just finished? You, you understand his flow there? This is really an indictment of a moralistic Jew who argues, we have the law, we have circumcision, we got it made. Paul is just saying, no, you have not. You're masterful hypocrites. And you don't understand what real circumcision is. In the words of Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, circumcision is of the heart first. All right. We only have about 10 minutes left. Are you with me? Do you understand? Any questions? Guys online there, any questions? No. Nope. Ready to write your thought paper on this? Mm-hmm. Good. All right, Glenn said he's ready to write his thought paper, so I'm going to give him that thought paper. We come back to sincerity and honesty, fact, and not appearance like the circumcision. That doesn't solve any salvation issue whatsoever. It's in the heart. Is your heart circumcised unto Christ? That's what matters, or under God prior to Christ. That's right. That's right. Exactly right. Fred, Fred, conscience is like grits in the south. You conscience is what? Like grits in the south. <laughs> grits. You don't order grits, they just come. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Automatic with no. some gravy on it. Yeah. <laughs> I will never forget the first time I ate grits. Surprise. <laughs> And I thought, this is sand in my mouth. Why am I eating this? Oh, oh my goodness. I never understood why human beings like that. All right. Now, if you're, if you're with me, I don't think we'll get this completely covered. But 3, 1 through 8 continues. It's like we've said many, many times before. Kind of a false chapter break here. As you know, the original didn't have chapters and verses. But again, he's, it's, it's, another, it's just his diatribe style. He's anticipating questions. He's anticipating questions that the Jewish person will ask. Then, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Really, you know, after all he's been saying, those two questions would really, really be important. The imaginary objector stands up, but what about us? Aren't we the chosen people? Isn't circumcision important to us? And Paul says, much in every way. Yes, much in every way. What advantage is the Jews? I said, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, the the oracles of God that's that's kind of a you know that's a Jewish euphemism but I know that doesn't mean anything to you but the oracles of God are the law is the law but it's also this is really important it's the prophets because an oracle is like a statement from God through the prophets as a matter of fact a couple of the prophets Jeremiah um, Habakkuk 
and I even think Obadiah, starts. The oracle of God, that's how the, the prophecy starts. And so this is what Paul's talking about. We've not only, you have not only received the law, you've received the oracles of God through the prophets. They're revealing more and more and more about God. You, the Gentiles didn't get that. The Gentiles didn't receive that. You did. And you inscripturated all of that into 39 books. My, oh my, yes. God has entrusted something to you. And that, the Greek word that the ESV is translating entrusted, it's a word of stewardship. God has stewarded this to you, that you will use it wisely for the purpose with which he declared it. You are very privileged. And he's going to elucidate on that a lot more in Romans 9, 10, 11. But he said, oh, man. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, that's an important rhetorical question. You have to think about it at the level in which he is addressing this. What if Jews who have been stewarded this wonderful, Set of the oracles of God, his moral law, all about the words of the prophets, which declare the more and more detailed revelation about God. Oh, you are so privileged to receive that. And then they have just the same thought. Well, what about those who are unfaithful? Doesn't that say something about God's covenant? That says something about God. If he chose us and some are unfaithful, that says something about God, right? which is what the unbeliever often says. The charge, they keep hurling back, whatever's happened, hurling it back to a charge against God. The horrors of Ukraine, what Putin is doing to that country. But the shootings down there in, in, in Robb Elementary School in Texas. You tell me God is good. God isn't faithful. God isn't good. You see, that, I've, I've had that charge hurled at me many times in my life. But see, that you have to, okay. Then what Paul is, he, so you're saying when the Jews are unfaithful, that says something about God, that God's not faithful. If he has a covenant relationship with those people and they don't live at the covenant, that's his fault. That's really what he's saying. So what you're really saying is it's God's fault. And God be true in all men of life. That's exactly what he's going to say. By no means. The strongest way you can say no in the Greek language, meganoita, the strongest way you can say no. Let God be true and everyone a liar. God is true. For you to hurl an accusation about God's faithfulness is a contrived lie. And he quotes, and I'm always... Intrigued at how Paul uses the Old Testament. But he goes back to Psalm 51, verse 4, and grabs it out and puts it here. As it is written, that you, speaking of God, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. In other words, God's word 
is true. And when he exercises his judgment, it will be a judgment that is perfect, that is just, that is right, and is true. Don't hurl your accusation at God. It's your fault. And so it's that personal accountability, in this case, uh, the Jewish people have rejected God's revelation and so on, but they will be held accountable for their own actions. And it's, this is what is, it's not humorous, but it's almost humorous. Throughout this section, where the universal condemnation of all humanity, you're getting to the strong sense. No one has ever been stand before God and say, never knew about you. I never knew anything about you. You're being unjust in condemning me to hell. God, first of all, doesn't send anybody to hell. They choose there. They choose that throughout their whole life. But anyway, so Paul is just showing that you're never going to be able to do that with God. You are not going to be able to charge God with being unjust. But every, if God be true, everyone a liar. Though everyone were a liar. Okay, now. This is um, this first part of this next section, which is 3, 1 through 8, we, we've just kind of covered. It's a diatribe. He's anticipating a question. Well, then what advantage does a Jew have? What is the value of circumcision? Paul says, every time, oh, my goodness. Among the many, many, many things I could cite is you have received the oracles of God, his law, and all of the prophets, the law and the prophets, those two phrases that summarize all the Old Testament, how privileged you are. Then they're, but wait a minute. What if people are unfaithful to the oracles of God? Doesn't that say something about the faithfulness of God, who's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God? All answers that, no, 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 no. Don't blame it on God. Then a second, a second question. A second objector, a second contention. <clears throat> but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Curious, interesting. Because Paul has just argued, quoting Psalm 51 4, that when God judges, it's a perfect, righteous, true judgment. It's not contrived. So what you're saying, Paul, is our unrighteousness shows the righteousness of God. Yes, because he judges you based on his righteousness. Well, then what should we say? Where's the hope? How can we have any hope? We're, we're doomed people. You want to know how Paul answers that? You've got to come back next week. Because this is a critical juncture in Paul's argument. Because he just said that. That your rejection of the oracles of God and your subsequent sin does not say anything about the faithlessness of God. It says your lack of faith. And he will hold you accountable based on that. All right, Paul, then you're saying that our unrighteousness shows the righteousness of God. What hope do we have? What should we say? 
how he answers this is brilliant. You gotta wait till next week. Because I'm out of time. All right? You don't have any questions, do you? <laughs> nah, this is this is really light stuff, so you know, law school. <laughs> All right, Russ, I'm not quite sure what to do with that, but <laughs> as a judgmental statement, yeah, I'm with you. All right, well, I hope, man, I hope I'm trying to do this as carefully as I can. I hope you're with me on this because this is really, really important section of scripture. Very good. Yep. All right, I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God and we thank you for Romans. I am so thankful, Holy Spirit, that you inspired Paul to write this. It's a masterful book. It really, it's a me. It answers a lot of questions I had when I first came to know the Lord. A lot of the major deep questions that I've been asked over the years. So often I take people to the book of Romans to show them the answers to a lot of their questions. What about those who've never heard of Jesus? Romans answers that. How does God hold people accountable who've never heard of Jesus? Paul answers that. It helps us to know your heart, O oh Lord, your, the perfection of your attributes, your justice, your love, your covenant-making, covenant-keeping qualities. You are a God who is ultimately good, and you always do that which brings honor and glory to you, and it does reveal the righteousness of God and the amazing nature of your grace to save us, we who want nothing to do with you, but we come to a point where we realize you're the only solution I have in my life. We who have come to know Christ understand grace and mercy and love and compassion of God in a deep way. It's transformative. So, Lord, bless these men. Be with them as they go about their day. Help them to represent you well in all their actions and all the things that they say, because they are your salt and light in this dark world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.